Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. I am excited today. Uh, a giant weight has been lifted off my shoulders. I feel like the world has kind of taken a, a little bit of a turn. Uh, I hope that maybe we'll be able to get some things under control. I'm starting to see cracks of light coming through the, the doorway, through the door jams. I'm starting to see some shows that I have tickets to starting to reschedule. I'm, I'm seeing lots of little things that just increase my optimism every day and it, it makes me feel good. And so today was a great day to have another conversation with somebody who I highly respect in the industry, somebody who's worked very hard to get where she's at. I'm very excited to talk to a, a mutual friend. Her name is Megan Doherty. She is a lighting designer. She's currently in Los Angeles. She has come highly recommended. I've, uh, I've actually reached out to her before and she's just been uh, still uh, busy and doing a couple things that have, we haven't been able to line up. So thank you so much for being able to make time with me today. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me. I, uh, I recently finished a podcast with Allie and Allie Pike. And she's like, you know who you really, really need to talk to. You need to get Megan. I'm like, you are so right. I got to like, do this. Yeah. Thanks very much, Allie Pike, for the shout out. She's always had my back. <laughs> the few times that you and I have actually got to hang out has been through mutual friends and we were in similar circles. And I've always enjoyed listening to your stories. The way you tell your stories of, from the industry have always been very, God, I hate to use the word infectious, but they have been very infectious. <laughs> wow. Thanks for saying that. Um, I don't, I have, great. That's a lovely compliment. I, I, I don't know if I agree with you, but that's very kind of you to say. <laughs> I, when, when, I, when, when Ali recommended it, I was like, oh my God. That's part of the one of the things that I miss the most about LDIs and stuff is hearing the uh, the war stories where people just come out and they're like, you'll never guess what I did. And I'm like, you know who's good at those? Megan Doherty's good at those. Wow, you're really setting me up here. Now there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's, there's a high bar being set right now. <laughs> So, so let's start it from the beginning. Let's say, let's, how did you decide that instead of being president of the United States, <laughs> you wanted to be in the lighting industry? Um, I've always been drawn to, you know, the concert industry. I was just thinking the first opportunity I had to see a concert where I had two, I have two older brothers and my oldest brother was like so stoked on Marilyn Manson. And so my mom was like taking him to a Marilyn Manson concert. But I was like, I was like 12 or 13 years old at the time. So I still liked like Mariah Carey. So I was like, I'm not going to go to a Marilyn Manson concert. Like that's like for like goth weirdo people or whatever. Um, but I don't know. I've just, I've always, once I started going to concerts, by the way, my first concert was Ozfest. So it was very like in the same realm of like, this was like a couple of years later where I was like, oh wait, actually rock music is cool. So like, so I just saw, like, I saw like Disturbed and I was like stoked on it at the time. <laughs> this is like, this is a young Meg. Um, Very eclectic interest here from Mariah Carey straight to Ozfest. I think, yeah, I think once you like hit a certain like, stage in your life like as a youngster when you go from like 12 to like 
13, 14, there's, there's like a, there's some drastic changes happening there. So I was a, I was a young whippersnapper loving Mariah Carey and then transitioning to like new metal and like system of a down and like shit like that. All right. So when you first started experiencing concerts, did you, did you wanted to be a part of the whole industry? Did you care which part? Well, um, I was also obsessed with this band at the time called Mindless Self-Indulgence from New York. And I was like on their message board all the time, like an internet, like dork. And I was like, my, I was 16 at the time. My mom would let me meet up with people on the internet. And like, I'm 33 now. So think about like how new and like what a mystery the internet was at that time. And my mom would like, let me meet up with these weirdos from the internet to like go see these concerts for this one band. And I saw them like probably like 63 times in like two years or something. <laughs> like It was like teenage, like fandom obsessiveness kind of stuff. But I think that's what started to cultivate my interest in like working in live music. And I became friends with like their like road team. Uh, and I thought they had like the coolest jobs ever. Like the, the front of house guy and the backline guy. And that's basically the only people they had on the tour. And like, just being like at the front gate, like this like really like hyper, like, I don't know, like ravenous fan being at the very front every time and having this back one guy crinkle up a set list and like throw it at me. And I'm like, he gets to decide who gets the set list. Like that is so cool. All right, let's let's take a moment to talk about. Are, are you the person who does that now? Do you give the set lists or do you keep them? <laughs> no, I like. I usually like. I take notes on mine when when I was a uh, when I toured. I would take notes on the set list about like things I'd want to change, so I couldn't hand mine out. But sometimes okay. I would have extras, and you know, people come to front of house and they ask. So like, yeah, it was like a pure honor to occasionally be that person who could like facilitate like you know just like making somebody's day or whatever like I hung up those set lists and I had like a bazillion of them I hung them up like on my bedroom wall you know I was like so stoked on it until I sold them on eBay later on or something (laughs) (laughs) so that's awesome you went from being the receiver of the set list to the giver of the set list and it's I don't want to put too much emphasis on this one, but there's a certain power. There is. <laughs> and when you're the giver of the set list, it's like, what? It's just a piece of paper. But the receiver of the set list? Yeah. It's it's not an equal transaction there. It's I know. It's a bestowing of the set list. I know. Happy to do it. It makes me feel great. <laughs> Uh, I have but, uh, to admit, I'm one of the ones I make people at least say please. If anybody, wow. is, if anybody's like rude, they're like, "Hey, you got a set list?" They're like, "Nope." Oh, if some, yeah. Mm-mm. If somebody's or if somebody can remember my name at the end of the set, I was like, "Okay, my name's Chris." If at the end of the name, if the end of the night, if you remember a name and you say thanks, then you're first in line. Oh, are you addressing the people who ask for the set list before the show even starts? Yes. That is a crazy concept to me. Cause like, even when I was like a ravenous fan, I never in a million years would have had the audacity <laughs> to ask somebody for the set list before the show has begun. It's like, I realized that there is a practical purpose for a set list. It's not just a thing to like hand out to fans or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now they exist. I, I'm sure you're, you're aware that they exist. They come, I would imagine they oh. come to you too. Oh yeah, it's baffling. Baffling yeah. me every time. If they're going to be thankful, I'm totally down. I will, I will go out of my way if somebody's extra polite or something, but man, if, if when people come to me and they're like, Hey, Hey, sound guy, you got a, you got a set list. I'm like, Nope. But it's yeah. sitting right there. Yeah. That's not for you. And I will right in front of their face. I'll give it to somebody who asked politely. Be like, Oh, this one's for, I mean, yeah. Just like everything in life. It's just like being nice, man. Gets you a long yeah. way most of the time right on so (laughs) next step you realize that that's the industry you're going to be in 
you, yes. you realize that those are the coolest people. You're like, hey, mom, uh, guess what happened? Uh, you let me get on the internet. Now I want to be a roadie. Yeah, I don't even think, look, I guess that was my thought. It's like, I, I wanted to work in touring industry in some capacity, but I kind of had this like weird way of thinking where I was like, okay, the only thing I could probably do is be a tour manager because at that time I didn't even realize like, lighting was a role that you could have and that band I was obsessed with like historically like never had like a lighting person so I it I guess it just never really crossed my mind because the okay. lights for that band it you just set up a look and that was like the end of it so um I moved to Chicago when I was 18 from I'm basically if Flint Michigan had a suburb that's basically like where I would where I grew up in the same house my whole life Wow. Until I turned 18 and I moved to Chicago and started working for what was previously known as Windish Agency. I was a I was an intern there just trying to like figure out like, you know, I guess like what worked for me in a sense of like what like how do how does my how do my like skill sets and like things that I'm good at translate into the most like feasible like position on a tour so I like for some reason I thought like tour management was the only path I could cross and then okay. I thought to be a tour manager you have to know how to do sound because I was like seeing a lot of these like artists come in with like a tm slash like front of house like person so I mm -hmm. like I like try to do like a lot of lighting people, I'm like a failed audio engineer because it's just like, I tried for years and I also interned for free at this music venue in Chicago called Lincoln Hall to like as an audio engineer intern. And it like so many years <laughs> spent on me like reading like the, the fundamentals of sound, like handbook and like things like that. And just like, it never like clicked with me. I did, I did do live sound at like a punk rock bar in Chicago that was like paid. Uh, and they, paid, they also let you drink as much as you wanted. So it attracted a lot of like party animal, like, you know, <laughs> front of house people, but like. That is the coolest job for anybody. I look at this point, you're in your early twenties. Me? At, when, oh, when at, you just, at this time, I was like, Ooh, you flatter me. Uh, <laughs> Even though I already said that I'm 33. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I must have been like 21 or something. Yeah. Like, you, yeah, in my 20s. Maybe. Sure. Let's just, for the record, let's just say you were 21 if they were paying you in drink. I was at least 21. Perfect. <laughs> to work at a bar. Yeah. And then from working at Lincoln Hall, I mean, it just started becoming clear that, like, I was way more interested in lighting. They finally, like, upgraded their system to this, like, you know, fader board that you know you just push up channels and they finally did this upgrade to in like Avalites Pearl 2000 or whatever <laughs> nice and, like the, and then it was like oh yeah this is a real thing and we're gonna pay people to do lights here now and um and I was like one of the few interns at the time who was hired from a unpaid position to actually like working in the venue how long were you able to maintain an unpaid internship? Oh man, isn't that crazy? It, it was, it's nuts because like, <laughs> I was just talking to a friend about this a couple days ago. It was, un basically you're a stagehand, you're it, right. at, at the venue. And if the show sells out, they would give you $25. <laughs> oh <laughs> so damn. Like, so the big question of the day was always like, is the show going to sell out? This is because we're just like waiting to get our sweet $25. But I was also a office manager for a, a practice space, like warehouse in Chicago. So I was doing that and working at the venue. So it's like, that's the only way that you can sustain. Like, right. and I worked at, I interned at Lincoln Hall for free for at least a year. So it was a long time. At That's least impressive. like two times a week. Oh man, this is totally going to go on a tangent, but I go, I go back and forth on that one so much. 
Because no, that I'm sounds like a wonderful, thing. that's a wonderful opportunity, you know? <sighs> totally. But at the same time, you were exploited for like a year. Oh, I know. And I think about that. And I, I think they, I think, you know, in general, people are starting to slowly recognize in, in the music industry that, hey, this isn't cool. <laughs> you know, like this unpaid internship thing. You don't even have to say unpaid. If you say internship, I feel like it's synonymous with unpaid. So yeah. I think places are slowly starting to recognize like, but it's tough because it's so competitive and the way, and people are always like trying to get their foot in the door. So it makes sense that, that I mean, there are people who are willing to do it, mm -hmm. but the way that I looked at it at the time was like, Hey, I'm not going to college. So if this is going to teach me the skills that I need and I'm doing, and I'm not paying for it, then that's a trade-off. So that's, that was kind of my rationale. Yeah. I, I like to, I think the word apprenticeship is a little bit better where at least you have like a mentor and even a pittance. It sounds like it at least had the $25 occasionally. I mean, if, <laughs> even if it was $25 every night, I mean, 25 for just showing up. I mean, that's something, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, add that to the budget. Come on. Nobody's going to be like, uh, can we cut the stagehands? They're getting paid $25. <laughs> There's no bean counter going like, I did it. I found the place to save money. It's, it's definitely <laughs> yeah, not. Exactly. It's definitely not the private jets or the, uh, the filet mignon in catering. It's, it's Meg. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I have to say, though, they pay more now. From what yeah, I've good. Played. That's so, awesome. I mean, this was a long time ago. As, as much as I hate the idea of an unpaid internship or, you know, exploitation, a younger me would probably jump right at it, at it again because we are passionate about this industry. We, none of us got into this to be rich, you know? Yeah. We got into this because we loved the, the guys that throw out the set list and you're like, that's, that's freaking cool. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I never even thought you could even like sustain like an average lifestyle. Like I didn't realize that there was like actual careers to be had in music where you're not just like eating $1 banquet TV dinners for <laughs> like all every day. <laughs> Like I had no expectations when I started. I was just like, eh, I mean, like, I'm probably never going to be rich anyway. So I may as well just like do whatever I want to do. Man, you just, you just ruled by passion here. You just like, this is what I'm doing and I don't care. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a very optimistic way of putting it. I think the reality was just like, I never expected to be rich. So it like, it didn't even, it didn't even matter, you know, like, I, it's just like yeah Meg, i like you i like the to... way that you summarize that oh we're, we're we're good yin and yang there <laughs> uh i just go to your I, I picture you going to your mom like hey so i want to be in this industry all i have to do is eat ramen for the rest of my life and i can do it <laughs> and your mom going like yeah i sure honey uh we kind of wanted more for you but if that's what you want <laughs> Is Dude, that a good portrayal? My parents were great in that sense where they they put no pressure on me. And it kind of like the same thing of like my expectations of myself. My parents didn't have any expectations of me at all. Like, and I did really well in school. Like, and like, you know, due to none of their prodding at all, I think I'm just like a weird, like type A personality who always feels inclined to like do, do good at whatever I'm doing. But um, yeah, like no, at any point in my career, whether it was I was working free at a music venue, did my parents ever even like think or insinuate like, oh, this, this might be like a bad path that she's on, you know? Like I wish she would just become a lawyer or something, you know? Cause my dad's like, he worked in like, you know, classic Michigan story. He worked in a car factory, 
you know like we're just like blue collar like you know coming from like farm town area you know we just like work hard it's weird yeah my wife too she grew up not uh, just on the other side of the border but her whole family was all if you didn't work for the big three you were a weirdo like why don't you just go work on the line and have a x amount you work from eight to five as soon as your yeah. shift's done you go home you do everything else that's not work related and have a pension 27 years later yeah if, if that's yeah. your thing Imagine, yeah, imagine if you came from a family of pressure, you know, or like high expectations. I couldn't mm-hmm. imagine that. My wife got a little bit more pressure. They're like, no, you should, you should take one of those jobs. And she's like, no, I'm going to be a singer. And they're like, eh, sure. Okay, then. <laughs> but it sounds like you didn't, it sounds like at one point you had to explain to your parents that they're, that you're on a path to a career. Um, let me think. I mean, I never really like openly. Yeah, I guess, I guess there probably was a moment where you have to explain that this is like a long-term situation and you're not just like, cause like my first tour was just like in a van, a cargo van, you know, of course. just like romping around the U S like, you know, I had like eight lights in my rig, like not to brag or anything, but eight. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it's it's hard to understand like the progression of that. Cause it's it seemed to happen, it happened so quick, you know. One one moment you're in a van and the next moment you're like on a you know, arena tour and you're like, this is crazy. Yeah. Uh, so what was the moment when you realized that you were going to be collecting a paycheck well enough to have an apartment and and you could uh, afford something better than ramen? Well, um, I guess I, when I when I started on the Lord tour in like 2017, I guess. Okay. Not that long. Wow. I was like, OK, this seems viable. And moving to LA obviously opened my eyes. I was so naive when I moved here. I just moved last year. I was like, it doesn't matter where I live because I'm going to get clients. Like clearly I've been getting clients living in Chicago. So it's not going to make a difference that I live in LA. And it's like, whoa, it's, it's a totally different thing over here. And it's like, I mean, COVID aside, it's, it seems secure. I mean, there's always so much stuff happening. Uh-huh. I don't feel the tension of like, competition here it feels like more of a community and maybe maybe this is part of the trick but it does feel like a community more than people competing for jobs that is the opposite of what uh la wants us to believe i think i la wants maybe, you to think maybe that it's just a cutthroat... to keep people outside of la <laughs> like, i don't want any more newcomers coming in but like i'm cool with the community that's cultivated right now there's a lot of work to be had there because there's just so many people trying to get attention. And the only attention that is really to be had, especially during the the COVID times is digital and you got to look good. You got to, so I can only imagine that there's a lot of people handing work off to each other whenever possible. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even considering this moment in time as part of the, whatever's happening, you know, in LA or, you know, I mean, COVID aside it, yeah. It's just like people helping each other out in my mind. Oh, that's nice. I've always liked to believe that despite the traffic and the apartment prices, it's a a (laughs) wonderful place to be, especially for in our entertainment, in our uh, entertainment industry. I know. Uh, Some of my best friends are in your just, in your neighborhood and that's i would, can only imagine you have a decent amount of people that you can uh, call up and you're like man it's a tough time right now what's what's up you guys want to go do lunch or something totally that's such a good point too it's like in chicago it i didn't even realize it because that was the first city that i lived in but it was very more like finance bro kind of like just in generally speaking not like my circle of friends but it's a lot of like 
people who are fine, like having nine to five jobs and like, you know, working downtown. And there isn't a lot of uh, entertainment compared to LA, obviously. So there is more like camaraderie and like understanding from my peers who live in LA than I wouldn't have the same kind of support in Chicago that I have in LA for sure. All right. So from the time you were 16 to now, have you ever worked outside the lighting industry? Oh, definitely. (laughs) I mean, like just before I started in this industry, I mean, it coming from where I grew up, it's like the only jobs you can get are like at Burger King and like, you know, so I was 14 years old, my first job cashier at Burger King. Second job. Legal? Yeah, I actually had to, you have to be granted an exception. Okay. Um, but you can fill out some forms and then you're like good to go. As long as your parents say it's fine, then it's good. Um, yeah, put her to work. Yeah, put her to work. Just want to make that sweet five fifteen an hour that I was making at the time. Oh, thank you, Michigan. Yep, bless it. And then, I mean, like, every job I had when I lived at home was just like so similar. It's like little Caesars. And then I, then I started working at Kmart and I worked in the little Caesars inside the Kmart. And like, even when I moved to Chicago, before I got that job managing a practice space for bands, the first job I got in Chicago was at Buffalo Wild Wings. And (laughs) and I'm vegan. So (laughs) Uh, I wasn't vegan at the time, but maybe that's what turned me. And like, yeah, it's just, but you have to, you have to like support yourself while you're trudging through as a young 19 year old or however old I was. I mean, you have to be 21 to serve in Chicago. So I, I was a hostess at Buffalo Wild Wings. Nice. (laughs) Never again. No. The big thing was like, I want to have a a job that doesn't require a uniform. And that was, that was a big part of the appeal. And I remember you saying that on a previous podcast too. And I was like, exactly. Like the dorky stuff that I had to wear, like khaki pants and like, you know, just a slew of embarrassing things. And then I hear about these like tours that require uniforms. And I'm like, I don't think I could do it. I don't know. Oh man. Yeah. I, uh, I stand, I stand tall on that one. I'll wear the, I'll, now that I work for Ayrton, I, I love wearing my shirt with the Ayrton on my logo with the Ayrton logo on my chest for LDI. I love going to like a meeting here or there, but man, if I had to like, if I had to put that on in from eight to five and then when I take that off, I'm not at work anymore. That's, I don't know. It feels like a costume to me and that, I'm not I think it's the, the perception of like you having the choice of doing it too. Yeah. Where it's like, and I mean, logically it does make sense that you wear an Ayrton shirt at like LDI. Cause yeah. it's like, you're there to promote the brand. Right. But like going into the office every day or whatever it is that, nope. <laughs> that, nope. that happens now. <laughs> no, nope. absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's the difference. It's, yeah. uh, you know, it's not the, you're Meg, you're at the front counter and you wear this, that's your role. And you're limited to that role. That's that's the part. One of the ones that always affected me was I used to work on cruise ships and you have to wear white pants and a white shirt. And I was a lighting technician. I'm like, this is the dumbest costume. Yeah. That's the worst thing you could wear. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, that I'm going to be like wrenching things and climbing ladders and climbing under stage. And you want me to wear a white pant with a stupid white belt and a name tag wow like, you don't you didn't think this at all you didn't think this yeah that, yeah that's that's the that's the problematic part about it right it's just if i get really annoyed by things that don't have true reason and logic assigned to them like i'm i'm just not about like doing something just because like i'm told to do it like i just want to know because <laughs> i just want to know why you know <laughs> Maybe I'm going to regret saying that, but like you I just, and my I just daughter, 
You and my daughter are the same. My daughter is like a, she's a default. No, I am not doing that. You have to convince me to do that. <laughs> I mean, it just helps, you know, like just to know why you're doing the things that you're doing. And yes. I, I, when I was like touring as I was like at a, at a certain time, I was a lighting director slash, like I would tech for myself. And I, I found it valuable to explain to stagehands like why they're doing the things that they're doing. It's like, so you're not just like a robot that's like unclamping lights, but you don't know why, you know? It's like, oh, these fixtures are going on the floor. You gotta take the clamps off, you know? I don't know. I think if you care a little bit and you do wanna see like a broader scope of like what you're doing, I, I think you'd be interested to know things like that. I, I find <laughs> that when I was on the road as a crew chief, I would get more assistance and more enthusiasm by giving picture, giving people a picture of the entire plot first and then asking them to start doing things. If you yeah. start asking them to lay out lights with no idea of what the end product is, yeah. you're going to have to explain it five times. Exactly. But I if you show them a picture, like this is what we're doing, this is, and it takes 30 seconds. Yeah. Here's a photo. I mean, but let's be real. There are some, some hands that just want to be told, put that there. <laughs> like they don't, they don't require an explanation, but like props to those other people where it's like, you do want to see the plot and you're like, okay, this makes sense. Yeah. The, the Megan Doherty's of the world, they need to see the picture and they need to be convinced. <laughs> like this is what's <laughs> happening today. Could you imagine what a nightmare it would be to have a gaggle of Megan Doherty's as <laughs> hand? It's like, thank God I'm doing what I'm doing now. <laughs> no, there's, o- there's only one. There can only be one. <laughs> That's okay. fine. Uh, my, my, I'm raising my daughter to be very similar. I'm asking her to question authority and Oof. make sure. My mom she- did the same thing. Ooh, that's a, it's a, it's a tightrope, man. It's tough. She's, she's, she's about to turn nine. And holy shit, do we have to explain every freaking thing? I know, but it's like, I don't know. You hear about all these like cases in the news where like people are like being taken advantage of by like authoritarian figures. And they, they always say stuff like, oh, well, I felt like I had to do it because I was taught to like respect authority. So I know there's like something, there's merit in obviously questioning authority, like, but you also have to like, you know, realize like they are the authority. So like figuring out the way to do it properly, it's tough. And some people don't want to be questioned. Like it doesn't matter, like, you know, if it's coming from a productive, you know, I mean, I'm always trying to like, question things in from a sense of productivity or whatever but like sometimes it's tough man yeah you uh, you have to walk that line should i should i make the light blue because i was told to or because the light or because this song is blue yeah and if as a designer if you can't go and like no i made the song blue because this this and this then you're going to get questioned all the time. Yeah, totally. You have to you have to be able to voice your opinion and explain your decision making and justify your choices. Yeah, I'm with uh, it. I love it. I, I think all children need to know that. That's that's great to hear that. That's a thing that that does exist. Oh man, that was a huge tangent. That <laughs> that was awesome. No, but uh, it's it's all relative to the industry, though. It's just it like is. What, you know. A lot of these things can be applied. <laughs> I'll take it one step further. The reason why we need to question authority is because of negotiations. Ooh. If somebody comes to you and says, there's this much money for this gig. If yeah. you don't ask for that X plus 500, you'll never get X plus 500. Yeah, totally. That's surprisingly I feel like that's one of my stronger suits. It's just being like, come on. <laughs> like, you know, because I'm, I'm not afraid to like walk away from like 
projects because I lot of, I think a lot of people they you know you've spoken about imposter syndrome on podcasts previously and I think people get afraid that they're like if I speak up then you know it's not going to work out for me and it's like how do I know when my next job is going to come if I don't just placate to whatever people are suggesting about rates or whatever and it's just like it's just like I don't know there's just something in me where it's like you have to you have to advocate for yourself and do what you think is right and don't don't let people like make you promises that you know you know, it's absolutely. It's a tricky industry. <laughs> it I'm is trying, tricky. I'm trying to like say things without like, <laughs> you know. No, you're you're doing very good. Uh, <laughs> to just be willing to say that you have to advocate for yourself and not take the first offer. You don't have to. And just like, uh, don't be afraid. I guess it's yeah. like because it comes from your own inherent like insecurities where you're like, oh, they're just gonna go to somebody else, like. It's just like, no, they're talking to you for a reason. So like do work for the amount that's going to make you happy and is reasonable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a fine line to walk, but uh, if you don't push the boundaries, you'll never find the balance. Yeah, exactly. It's unsustainable. If we're not getting paid what we're worth in the industry, we're not going to last. If we're constantly being felt taken advantage of, or if yeah. one day we find out what somebody else is making, we're like, oh my God, I'm not making that at all. Am I not as good? No, it's yeah. not that you're not as good. It's just you're not advocating for yourself. Yeah. So. And who knows what that's going to look like in the future? Like, it's, I feel like a lot of people have this um, idea that we're not going to have a lot of negotiating power in the future just because of you know what's happening in the world right now mm-hmm. but my counter argument to that is i feel like a lot of people are finding new careers and you know the pool of people to choose from could be dwindling in a, in a little bit it's like there's not that many of us who do what we do that's true no there, i've talked to quite a few people that have you know had to step a, step aside I, I hope they didn't step away. I hope they just stepped aside, but yeah, man, it's maybe that's like my selfish way of looking at it. It's like, I hope everybody finds new careers. So I have less competition. <laughs> 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 I'm the only one doing lights now. <laughs> I had to wait five years for the industry to come back, but I'm still doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's going to find another Megan Doherty. So here wow. I am. I hope you're right. All right. So one of the things that you kind of covered is that you, you never, you didn't come into this industry with a plan, definitely not a plan to get rich or uh, wealthy in any way. Are you finding it sustainable? Uh, current pandemic aside, are you finding our industry to be sustainable to the point that maybe you'll be able to retire someday? Man, I mean, I hope so. Uh, like, I feel like the industry was as strong as it's been in such a long time, like before COVID. Like everyone I spoke to was like, I had so many projects coming up that I was looking forward to. And like 2020 was going to be my best year. And like, I feel 100% the same. And yeah. so I feel, but I mean, with now COVID, tough to say, I think, I think it is going to resume normal. Yeah. And I do feel like a, a pretty strong sense of stability. I mean, when I was, when I was touring really heavily, when I lived in Chicago, I just lived in this like apartment for like $300 a month or whatever. And then like Airbnb it while I was on tour so I could make extra money. So I was like able like to buy a house in LA And that was kind of the moment for me where I was like, oh, this is like, I'm like a, I'm like a real adult, (laughs) you know? And it's like, I'm working in an industry that can, you know, sustain like my life. I don't want to say lifestyle because that makes it sound like I'm like buying Rolexes and stuff all the time. And it's like, 
Uh, yeah, I'm hoping to retire. I have a, I have a retirement fund going and like my retirement plan is like super cheap anyway. It's like, I'm going to sell my house in LA, obviously I'm going to move two hours North and I'm going to open a farm animal sanctuary, (laughs) you know, just easy peasy. And I've been looking on Redfin. You can get like a 10 acre lot with two houses on it for like 400 grand. It's like done and done. Just got to get the cows somewhere. Oh, there's, there's plenty of cows that need saving. They, I know. Uh, yeah. We can, <laughs> we, we can fill a whole nother podcast with that. Yeah. That's a whole other, <laughs> that's a whole other topic. Yeah. But yeah, that's my plan. I mean, like I've, right. I even looked into it during COVID. I was like, is there something I could do like right now? But it's like, not, not yet. Right on. Well, you've got, you've got one sure. investor here. I'll, uh, I'll back you. My boy. All right. Boom. It's a verbal contract. You know, we're yeah. recording right now. I'm holding you yep. to it. <laughs> I'm going to send this out to the world. Uh, my wife is, uh, she'll back me up on it. Awesome. I love um, it. So that's awesome. I, I wish that 30 year old Chris would have met 30 year old Megan because I was not the same. I was spending as much money as I could faster than I was getting it because I just knew that there was another gig. And then the next gig funded the previous day party and I'm like, well, whatever. I'm about to make so much money on the next one. And I just, I was just blowing money left and right. And it wasn't until I had that feeling that you mentioned of like, Oh my God, I'm an adult. I, yeah. I have to stop doing this. Yeah. And well through my thirties, beginning of my thirties, I was still just hemorrhaging money because it was, you know, the good life. It was the, like, I'm always going to be busy. Yeah. It's kind of like when I kind of liken it to like when people win the lottery or something, because it's like a lot of people who work in the industry, like myself included, never thought that we would have like extra money to like spend, you know? So it's like, you kind of don't know what to do with that. Like, I never thought about like financial advisement or something, because that's not like, that's not like part of my upbringing or you know what I mean? Like, so, but I respect those personalities that do things the way that you're describing too, where it's like, you just like spend all your money and stuff. Like, I wish I could do that. Just like not, not think about like, you know, things in the long term. just like enjoying the moment of like, Hey, I'm on a tour and I'm, I got all these PDs, baby. <laughs> I would always come home and that, like my PD's like not spent. It's just, I was just like, eh, whatever. Good for you. Good for you. It's so boring though. And like my apartment in Chicago was so, I'm trying to like, I'm not saying one side is better than the other. other and that's why I'm clarifying right now. It's like mm-hmm. my apartment in Chicago was so aesthetically like not pleasing, you know? And it's just like... <laughs> sacrifices I, I made a lot of sacrifices at the expense of just like saving money and it's so dull so i think either way it's just like it's fine do whatever works for your personality so you're kind of thrifty but you're still able to like come up with extravagant designs dude where do you find your creativity <laughs> that's such a that's such a funny question because when i first started designing I, the thriftiness in me was always like playing inside my head where it's like artists want to spend this much money on this. It's like, why don't you guys just like do something way cheaper? And like, you know, like my whole thing was like, I'm going to find ways to save you guys money. And it's like, but that's not, that's, that's not always what's needed. It's like, sometimes you do. I know. Like, <laughs> why are you making that face? That's a huge hurdle. I, I also had to overcome that hurdle and it's so good to hear my thoughts coming out of your mouth right now. Yeah, because I feel like other other people who I've talked to, they always want to just like go big and like spend like the, the, the max possible budget on stuff. And it's like, that mindset's cool, but like there's, there's just always this like practical voice in my head where I'm like, this is a lot of money, you know? <laughs> so yeah, you have to figure out like where it's appropriate or like, you know, listen to what the artist wants. If they want this huge banger, like 
crazy like production design it's like you gotta give it to them you can't be like oh we could save money if we just skip doing a couple dresses it's like that's not what they want no they will they will shame you for even thinking <laughs> of that they would be like are you insane why would we cut those trusses like well because then i can get you down to one truck and we can save this yeah. and this and this and they're like but they don't care about trucks no <laughs> like, yeah I, I i think a lot of it is like you know i don't want to say ego but it's like they they want to like have a production design that's reflective of like their their big show you know it's production value yeah they know that production value is value and i man it took me so long to to make that connection yeah totally wow i'm glad there's people like us in the world uh it is a hurdle it was it was the the form and the function means nothing compared to the extravagance and the the showmanship and the the amplification you know that's our job as form and function is you know a front light and a backlight for every person on stage beyond that <laughs> go wild yeah such a crazy I remember way the- especially when you have like one like if you have something in your design that you only use like once and like that's just a perfect example and like i i like to do that a lot because i feel like it's more impactful to just like just do the thing once and then we'll get rid of it forever um but it i've had like production managers like local production managers come up to me and be like this was really good but like i wish you would have used like the flown rig more because like we we paid for all this like flown rig and it's like yeah but like <laughs> it's like you're coming purely from a sense of like you know and so that's that's the only time where i try to like i i make exceptions where i'm like this makes sense even though it does seem like a bit of a, a squander to somebody who doesn't understand like the artistic impact of what you're doing you know just because you use stuff the whole show doesn't mean you got more value out of it yeah to be able to justify your decisions like no i used all that phone rig only when necessary yeah and that's how we got the most impact out of it yeah i think a lot of up-and-coming lds kind of have that sort of mentality where they're like i have to turn on all the lights all the time you know and that's that's how i i get good use of the rig and it's like you can't even tell what's going on the the best example of that is just because my lights have 47 gobos does not mean I have to use 47 gobos. That's my mantra, dude. Yeah. Less dude. Is more, dude. Boom. <laughs> we are, we are total yin and yang on that one. We, we gel. We see eye to eye on that one, even though you might be a little more pessimistic about it and I might be a little <laughs> more optimistic about it, but we're still, still meeting in the middle there. For sure. It's a good team. Yeah. Uh, we are getting a little bit low on time, but one of the questions I wanted to go a little bit deeper in with this, you, where do you find your creativity then? How do you put that completely aside and say, this is the idea. It's super extravagant, but, but it's worth it. Where does that come from? Wait, I'm not sure I'm understanding the question. (laughs) Okay, let's say that you've put together a design. How do you look at one of your renderings and go, this is the one. This is the one that I'm going to present. And this is going to get me the gig. That's tough. Honestly, I'm, I'm never like fully signed off on. I know that sounds like such a like surprise thing to say, but I, it's just like, I'm never fully signed off on it. I'm just like, I just think like, well, I got to pick something. So, you know, you got to like do something that you're into and just consciously, I have to make myself like commit to it. Cause it's like, you know, once you're presenting it, it's like, you're pretty much like signed on, but that's a hard thing for me to do. Cause I'm, I'm not good at commitment that's like in all facets of my life (laughs) (laughs) 
so co committing to like a design, it's really tough for me. And I don't know, it, it's just like forced out of me just due to like, this is such a pathetic answer, but it's the truth. It's like, it's just forced out of me. Like, I'm like, shit, well, we got to start prepping. We got to like find a vendor and like, you know, we, we just have to keep moving, you know? But I never like, I don't think I've ever put a design together where I was fully like a hundred percent, like this is, this is the thing. And that's, uh, I need to work on my sales pitch in that respect, because it's like, you have to like, you have to let people know that like, yeah, this is the thing and it's going to be great. <laughs> your, your Mona Lisa is still in the works. So you have, you haven't had that moment where you're just like, that's, that's the one that's the, yeah. I'm going to butcher this quote, but uh, perfection is the enemy of completion. Yeah, ooh, that that's deep. I think striving for perfection is kind of like the mantra of any person who has yeah. like anxiety issues. <laughs> it's just like, we're just always obsessed with like, and it's like, you gotta let it go. I'm working on it. I, I hope that we all are to some degree because I, I, we should always be striving for perfection, but we should all know that we're going to come up short every single time. Yeah, for sure. That shouldn't stop us from striving for it. Shoot for the moon, baby. Absolutely. That is, <laughs> that's great advice. That's a great way to end it. I think this is a shoot for the moon, baby. I think that's going to be the title. <laughs> Do not put that as the title. <laughs> <laughs> all right great well thank you so much for having me thank you for my time or for the, your time i uh this would have been much better as a for a couple drinks at the circle bar but this is oh, but then i would have said too much so i mean this is perfect <laughs> <laughs> thanks for your time meg all right toodles